Tyndale. William Tyndale uh, was uh, one of the greatest men of the Reformation movement. And we talked about how it was his goal that he placed in his life to uh, translate copies of the New Testament from uh, from Latin into English, so that the common people could have those uh, have that resource. And ultimately, he gave his life for that. And uh, uh, he was uh, exiled from his own homeland. He never did return to England again. And uh, he uh, was absent from his family, his friends. He was destitute in poverty for the majority of his life. And uh, as we look at and study the history of the church as we've gone through the, 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 the church itself, the falling away period, and now as we talk about this Reformation, of course this Reformation is the Reformation of the Catholic Church. After all the things that they had imposed and that they were doing to the people and, and not allowing the people to do, uh, people became tired and, and fed up with that. They wanted to have actual copies of the Bible. They wanted to read the Word of God. And they wanted to make choices and decisions based on their understanding of what the New Testament said, not on what the Pope said or any of the priests or the bishops or, wh- or whatever, uh, whoever was trying to make decisions. Now, uh, as we study these men... I think that, it, or at least for me, it is, it is difficult not to see the providence of God working <clears throat> in the lives of these men. Again, they were uh, involved in religious error, okay? But they saw a problem and they were making great effort to try to fix that problem. Now, they didn't go far enough, uh, you know, they, they should have got out of their broken vehicle into another vehicle, but they tried to continue to repair and reform something that was irreparable. But, having said that, these men, through their efforts, allowed people to have uh, Bibles in their hands that they could understand, that they could read for themselves, and because of that, they uh, began to see the light. They were... Uh, going from darkness into light. And when we get over to the Restoration Movement, uh, restoring the New Testament church, uh, we're going to notice that a lot of those men held some ideas that we would disagree with today. Uh, Barton Stone held the view that Jesus was a created being. Uh, There are some denominations in the world that hold that. Jesus is a created being, meaning He's not God. But what we have to understand, and we're not uh, defending that at all, that's error, okay? But what we have to understand is these men and women were coming out of darkness on their own, right? We, it's hard for us to understand that. There's not a one of us who, haven't, who hasn't had help from somebody to better understand something, right? And so uh, <clears throat> we see these men... Uh, coming out of darkness on their own. Of course, they had the Word of God, but even when we read in the New Testament, the apostles and those other brethren, they taught and they helped people come to a better understanding because sometimes people miss some very important details. And as a result of missing some very important details, now you have all the denominations of the world who are actually in competition 
with the religion of the Bible. So, having decided to leave England, Tyndale went to Hamburg, Germany. In Hamburg, uh, he went 1524, and he began his work. He, he, and he began his work with this idea, hoping with uh, his labors to do honor to God, true service to his prince, hoping to bestow unspeakable blessings upon his priest-ridden people. Now, that wasn't a compliment, was it? Priest-ridden. They were pest-ridden is what they were. And so he was starting this effort, and maybe the greatest effort to put Bibles in the hands of people. Now, while he was in Hamburg, he devoted the whole of his time to translating the New Testament. Uh, but he, uh, about a year later, he had to move to Cologne, Germany. Things began to get a little heated for him. He began to, <coughs> excuse me, see that he needed to get out of there. And, uh, uh, but when he got to Cologne, there was something in Cologne that was going to make things a lot easier for him. Printing presses. Printing presses, right? Up to this time, what had people been doing? If you wanted a copy, you had to write a copy, right? And uh, we read about scribes in the New Testament. That was their job, wasn't it? They were to print uh, or write the uh, Old Testament. That's what they were doing. They were writing. That's why they were called scribes. And so he was able to uh, get his hands in, or his translations in the hands of printers. Now, there was a problem in Cologne. There was a man in Cologne by the name of John Cochleus. Okay? John Cochleus. C-O-C-H-L-A-E-U-S. And he was known as the watchdog of Romanism. Now, it's odd. He was in Cologne because of an uprising in his hometown. The peasants had risen up against the priesthood and the clergy, and so he had to get out of town. But, unfortunately, he was in Cologne, and that's where Tyndale was. In fact, he was in Cologne. He was having some books printed. And through his... uh relationship with some of these printers, he came to know the name William Tyndale. And, of course, being the watchdog of Romanism, he learned what Tyndale was trying to do, and that was absolutely 180 degrees in the opposite direction of what he thought Tyndale ought to be doing. And uh, he learned about his translating the Bible from Latin into English. And so he didn't like that. And so he wanted to find out a little more information about it. And uh, uh, he had talked about, or he had heard these printers kind of bragging about this man being in Germany who was having these Bibles printed and was going to get them into England and there was nothing the king of England could do about it. And so that piqued his interest. So he got a bunch of them together, invited them to dinner one night, supplied them, I think it says, with much wine, got them drunk, and then they began to talk. And they began to talk about William Tyndale. They began to talk about what he was doing. They began to talk about the number of copies that had been printed. And I think he had printed about 3,000 copies. And uh, 
He also learned about the skills of Tyndale. Tyndale was an eloquent speaker. He was a master of languages. And uh, uh, he... now, he was never able to actually meet or speak to Tyndale, but he didn't have to do that, did he? All he needed to know was the information uh, and uh, what that information was and where it was happening. <clears throat> so anyway, after finding out this plan, Cochlea, is that what I said his name was? That doesn't sound right, whatever. Co- okay, yeah, that's it. I didn't look at my notes. He was friendly with this German senator who was obviously friendly with the king of Germany. And so through his efforts, he wanted to be able to thwart what Tyndale was doing. Now, what happened was uh, this senator began to close up all the seaports He wasn't going to let anything out, anything in. And they were searching everything. But Tyndale had a few connections of his own. And so they were able to get these 3,000 copies of the New Testament out. But they had to hide them in flour sacks. They had to hide them in clothing. They had to hide them in bedding. And any other way they could figure out how to hide these copies of uh, the New Testament. Now, that reminds me of a story that Mary told me not long ago, her daddy was a was a, a ham radio operator. Talked to people all over the world, and prior to the uh, uh, Iron Curtain falling, falling, he was in communication with a man. Now, where was this? Yugoslavia, and you know what this man asked for? New Testament, New Testament. He wanted New Testament. You weren't allowed to have a New Testament back at that time, right? What was this? Probably in the sixties. 50s, okay? And so what Mary's dad did and mom sewed, was it 50? 50 Bibles into the linings of coats and mailed them over there as clothing, which is what it was, right? It was clothing. That sounds a lot like what Tyndale was doing, doesn't it? And so they got the word out. They were able to get these New Testaments into the hands of people uh, in New England. And so the reception of the New Testament in England was astounding. People were overjoyed at, at having an actual copy of the Bible in their hands to read it in their language to be able to understand it. And it was stated talking about Tyndale after he had gotten these copies over there, that it was given to the hands of people who had long walked in darkness. But now they were overjoyed because they had the light that was going to be used to shine into their lives. And that's how the Word has been described throughout the Bible, hasn't it? David talked about uh, a light. Absolutely. Say it again. Lamp under my feet, light under my path. Shows me where I am, where I need to go, right? And so that's what these people received. Isn't that amazing? See, that's hard for us to to really comprehend that, isn't it? Again, we've said this. We have multitudes of Bibles, copies of copies of copies. i probably got 40 in my office, you know, of just various. Uh, not that they're all good translations, mind you. I'm not supporting them. I just happen to collect them. But anyway, uh, uh, it, it's not... Uh, 
an obstacle to gain a copy of the Bible, right? In, in the multitudes of languages, multitudes of languages. But it was very difficult at the time William Tyndale was doing his work. And even on into the 20th century when Mary's daddy was doing his work. And so we appreciate those people like that. And we can see again the providence of God <clears throat> working in the lives of people. If you want to know the truth, I believe God will place you or someone in your path so that you can understand and learn what the Word of God is. Any comments? Absolutely, and, and, and Brother Joe makes a statement that that ought to encourage us to do what we should do after the things these men did, the lengths they went to. They gave their lives for this. And that's hard for us to comprehend, to, to, to put into perspective. They gave their lives so that people that they didn't even know could have copies of the Bible, Right? And, uh, of course, Brother Joe mentions, you know, that's not the difficulty we face necessarily today in our country, right? There are still countries in the world where, where uh, you know, don't get caught with the Bible. Don't get caught with the Bible in North Korea or, or Red China. Right? Don't get caught with the Bible there. You better not get caught with the Bible in uh, uh, many of the Middle Eastern nations. They'll just cut your head off, okay, because they hate Christianity. But... The problem we face isn't having a copy of the Bible. It's having interest in the Bible, right? Because, just as Brother Joe said, we are an affluent nation. It's the greatest nation ever existed in the history of the world. You know, we're sitting in a place that's air-conditioned with soft seats. It has light. Uh, you know, we have some security measures in place, but we don't expect the army to come kicking the door in, right? Telling us we can't... Uh, participate in worship as we see fit. And so that ought to encourage us to uh, get the message of the gospel to people, right? And that's one thing, I think that's one thing difference we're going to see in the Reformation and the Restoration, okay? The Reformation wanted to get the actual Word of God in the hands of people, right? So they could read it, but there wasn't that much understanding of that Word. And I think that's the key point, isn't it? Again, we go back trying to reform the Catholic Church and fix it. Well, it, you can't fix it. It has to be done away with. You can't worship in that way. It's not according to what the Bible tells us. And so, uh, was this a great effort to get the Bible into the hands of people? Absolutely. We had to have it, right? That's the first step. Now we've done that. These, because of these men, we've done that in the world. Now what, what's our goal? Delivering that message, right? 
reasoning together. Uh, God made that statement throughout the Bible. R- let us reason together for, for a purpose, right? Because we are able to understand the message, and it is our responsibility to reason with other people according to the message. Now, does that mean that that's going to be easy and that people are going to accept it? No, but that's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to offer the message. Now, it's the person's responsibility whether or not they are even interested in the message. Nicole's telling me that uh, someone was mentioning to her about a particular denomination coming up to the to their door, and uh, or someone was telling about it. Anyway, uh, uh, they knocked on the door, and, and uh, they came to the door, and they told them who they were, and, and uh, the person inside the home said, I'm not interested, I've got the truth. And then the reply on the porch was, well, if you've got the truth, why are you not knocking on my door? There's a lot to be said about that, right? If we had a cure for cancer, would we keep it at home? What about a cure for dementia, a cure for Parkinson's, a cure, you name the disease or the affliction, and what kind of person would withhold that information from the world? I don't think we'd hold them in very high regard or esteem, would we? But often people don't look at uh, the Word of God in that way, right? It's uh, no one wants you know that's a uh, and it is it's difficult to talk about religion to people isn't it is that something that is the easiest thing to do no it's very difficult to do that it's uh, alarming even sometimes isn't it it's a little bit uh, scary to uh, knock on somebody's door or to engage in a discussion about Jesus but you know. doesn't bother me a bit to talk about University of Tennessee football. Not a bit. I'll talk about it however long you want to talk about it. Uh, we'll discuss what they need to do to get back on track, right? But when it comes to something that's so much more important, we kind of shy away from that a little bit, don't we? And that's not what we need to do. And I think Brother Joe makes a wonderful point here. This ought to encourage us. Tyndale gave his life a martyr tortured to death so people like us can have a copy of the Bible in our in our native tongue. What a, what a man! You know, let's honor him for what he did, uh, for the great things that he did. Good comment. Anything else? Brother Sam. There was a movement going on, and the question is, what kind of support system did he have? He didn't have a great support system, okay? There were a few individuals where he was that was able to help him in some ways. And in fact, uh, let's mention one right now. And again, the question is, how, how did he go about doing this, okay? How was he able to... Find the funds. I mean, the man was destitute. Okay? Well, he had a few benefactors that helped him in small ways to get these things published. Now, in 1529, uh, we'd mentioned uh, Bishop Tunstall earlier. 
At any rate, a bishop by the name of Tunstall went to Antwerp. Antwerp is a port city on the river uh, Scheldt in Belgium, okay, European port city. And he went to uh, seize Tyndale's New Testaments. Now, by chance or providence, Tyndale happened to be at that same location. Now, the two didn't meet personally, but there was also a man there by the name of Parkington. Parkington knew the bishop, okay? And so in his conversation with this bishop, Tunstall, who wanted to gather up these New Testaments and burn them, he came to, uh, they came to the conversation, Tunstall explained to him what was going on, and Parkington said, I know where you can get your hands on a bunch of copies of New Testaments. Are you interested? He said, I'm absolutely interested. So Parkington goes back to uh, William, and he tells him, he says, look, the bishop is here. The bishop said he'd pay any amount of money for these New Testaments. He had 3000 That's all he had printed. He said, or he didn't tell him the name, but anyway, he said, there's a man who wants to buy them. He said, well, who is it? He said, it was Bishop, Bishop Tunstall. He said, he wants to burn them. Parkinson said, yeah. He said, great. Great, great news. He said, great news for two reasons. We'll charge him for them. Now, prior to him telling this, Parkinson said, now, William, for this work you've involved yourself in, you've become destitute, you put your life and your friends and uh, your life and your friends' lives in danger. You uh, have become a beggar. You don't have anything in this world. He said, okay, let's sell them. But it was a blessing on two, on two counts. He said, number one, I'll get enough money to get out of debt. And there will be plenty of money left over to reprint a better edited copy of the New Testament. Number two, Tunstall's going to take all these books and he's going to burn them and the world is going to cry because of that. And it started this uproar. And so what happened was he sold him to books. He got this large amount of money. He was able to reprint, I think, 6,000 copies this time. Well, come to find out, as these copies also were making their ways into, into London, Tunstall gets back in, in contact with Parkinson. He said, now wait a minute. You told me that I could buy every single copy, and he said, every printed copy. It appears they've printed more. The bishop said, well, as long as they have letters and stamps, and of course he's talking about the printing machine, right? As long as they have letters and stamps, I'll never be able to get all the copies. And Parkington said, you'd been better off to bought all the letters and stamps. The bishop smiled. The end of the matter was over. So, kind of to your question, he had some benefactors along the way. Now, how much of that was providential? Well, we don't know. We can't really say in this life, but it looks providential to me. If people want the Word of God in their hands, there will be ways through some means, not miraculous, but through some means, 
that we will be able to get those books in the hands of those people. Now, <coughs> excuse me, as time went on, Tyndale was a hunted man. And he continued to be hunted. Now, he was pretty wily. He's pretty sharp. He escaped a lot of the time. But finally, this one particular man, I don't recall his name right off the bat, had kind of become friendly with him, invited him to his home, and it was a ruse. And so they captured him. They took him to a state prison about 25 miles from Antwerp, where all the action happened. They put him in prison. A lot of people made effort to try to get him released, but they wouldn't do it. Ultimately, they took him down to the stake. They strangled him to death, and they burned his body to ashes. Now, William Tyndale was born in 1494. William Tyndale was murdered in 1536 at the age of 42. What a wonderful work he did in a very short period of time. Any comments, questions? I think we owe a debt to him and to all these other men we're going to be talking about. Now, let's kind of get back more in chronological order and let's talk a little bit about Martin Luther. Martin Luther is well known, has a denomination named after him, which is in opposition to what his wishes were when he was in this life. He said, call yourselves after no man, only after the Lord. What happened? Well, you have Lutheranism, right? Uh, so, uh, anyway, Martin Luther was born before Tyndale. He was born in 1483. He died in 1546 at the age of 63. Now, when we get to the 16th century, we see how the papacy had almost universal control in Europe. But, but there were problems brewing under the surface. As early as the... Uh, beginning of the 14th century, the, the early 1300s, people were rejecting what the papacy, what the Catholic Church was doing. Okay, They were getting tired of what was going on. And uh, uh, they were persistent in their denunciation. They had a great zeal to uh, throw off the yoke of this. They uh, despised, as it were, the priesthood for the things they did. And uh, this hatred arose from certain things that were happening. The, the church had produced and laid upon the people intolerable burdens, okay? Uh, and it was all sourced in money. The, the regular tithing that was going on was an intolerable burden to the average person. But uh, it was the aggressive greed of the priesthood, and they went beyond what the tithing system required. <clears throat> it was almost as if when we read through the New Testament and we read about publicans, publicans had to collect a certain amount of money, had to send that to Rome, and anything above that, well, you just put that in your pocket. And that's what was happening in the Roman Catholic Church all throughout Europe. Now, I want to read a statement to you found in the book The Era of the Protestant Revolution. It was, uh, this book was written by a Spanish historian by the name of Seabom. Seabom. S-E-E-B-O-H-M. Now this is what he said about the time. 
He said, I can see that we scarcely get anything from Christ's ministry, ministers, but for money. At baptism, money. At marriage, money. At bishoping, money. For confession, money. No, not extreme unction without money. Now, extreme unction is the former name of a sacrament that is used in the, in the Catholic Church. And that's, uh, it's now called your rites. Your, your final rites, you know, someone's about to pass on. But extreme unction was the priest coming and anointing the sick, especially those who were on their deathbeds. Okay, that's extreme unction. Now, you can't get that unless you have money. Okay? He went on to say, uh, uh, they ring no bells without money, no burrows in the church without money, so that it seems that paradise is shut up from them that have no money. Boy, he nailed it, didn't he? He nailed it. The rich are buried in the church. The poor are buried in the churchyard. The rich may eat meat in Lent. Of course, Lent is that period of time when uh, the Catholics give up something. Okay? They give up something. But the poor may not. Talking about eating meat. Uh, albeit fish be much dearer. The rich may readily get large indulgences, but the poor none, because he wanteth money to for them. Of course, we remember the indulgences. Uh, you commit a sin, you pay the money, and it got to the point, we'll mention the, the fellow again here in a moment, that people, it, it got to be such big business that people were coming and buying indulgences for what they knew they were going to do. You know, it's almost like, well, we're going to go out this weekend. Let me go ahead and buy some indulgences to cover the sin in which I'm going to engage. I mean, it's it's ridiculous, isn't it? <clears throat> to think that someone would believe that they can live that way. Well, when we think about the life of a Christian, what's the first thing someone has to come to understanding of if they won't be a Christian? Well... Belief in, in God, right? Belief in Jesus that, that He is the Son of God. And we, we can read the New Testament and we can, uh, see the evidences in there. But what is the next thing? And it's probably the biggest thing that we have to come to terms with. Repentance is the hardest thing, isn't it? Now what does repentance mean? Stop doing it to do it no more. Now, what we're talking about is living in sin, right? You stop living in sin to never live in sin again. And that's the very mindset that God requires. Now, does that mean that the Christian is not going to sin and make mistakes from time to time? No, because people do that. But there's a difference between sinning on occasion and living in sin, right? And so, is a person... Uh, living a faithful life when he says, well, I'm going to go out and sin, do whatever I want to do, but I'm going to buy these indulgences beforehand. No, you're intending on doing something, aren't you? You're intending on living in sin. And so that's why it's just so uh, apart from what the Bible teaches, right? But that's what was going on. <coughs> now, excuse me. Now, uh John Tetzel was the man we spoke of who was trafficking in these indulgences. He was like the head guy over these indulgences. 
And as bad as the Roman Catholic Church was at this time, it had probably more power than ever. And a lot of it had to do with the confessional, the indulgences, the, you know, the, the doctrines that held the people captive and not being able to have a copy of the Bible for you to read it for yourself. But about 34 years before all of that, a man by the name of Martin Luther was born. Martin Luther was a good man. I think he was a man who loved God. He was born to poor parents, but they wanted Martin to have the best education he could possibly have. So they sent him <coughs> to school in Magaburg. Now, Magaburg is a city in central Germany, and it is on the Elbe River, okay? And when he went to Magaburg to go to school, the common practice was for poor boys to kind of band together and they would go from house to house and sing in front of the house of wealthy people and in the hopes of being invited in for dinner. And uh, sometimes they would be invited in. Sometimes they would be given what the leftovers. And sometimes they were just given some bread. Okay? Now, during this time, uh, a lot of this uh, way of living helped mold Luther to his beliefs in life. At a very young age, he's off, away from home, he's trying to get an education, and he's begging for his sustenance. Okay? Now, at the school, tuition was free, but you had to provide your own food and lodging. Okay? So on one occasion, he's out, he's doing his thing, and he's begging for food, and he was mistreated in three different homes, and so he came to himself, he said, you know, what am I doing? I'm going to go back home. I'm going to go with my dad. I'm going to start working in the mines. We talk about benefactors. Every one of these men, we're going to find out, I believe, through providence, had people that helped them in their efforts. While he was standing, thinking to himself, he happened to be standing in the front of another home. Now, uh, a woman came out. Her name was Madam Ursula Cotta, C-O-T-T-A. She was the wife of a very wealthy merchant. She had heard how Martin Luther had been spoken to by these three other people. And so she invited him in to have supper. Well, the family kind of got to know Martin Luther a little bit. They got to liking Martin Luther. So what they did was they allowed him to become a part of their family. He didn't have to worry about eating. He didn't have to worry about lodging. All he had to worry about was study. And so for three years, he stayed in the home of these people. Now, over time, Martin Luther continued his studies. When he was 18 years old, he went to another university. That university is called the University of Erfurt. E-R-F-U-R-T. At 18 years old, he went to Erfurt. Now, it was founded in 1379. It was closed in 1816. But in 1994, 
after the reunification of Germany, it was reestablished. So we could go to that very university if we wanted to visit there. Obviously a different building, but the same university. Well, after being two years at this university, Martin Luther had this great love for books, and he was in the library, and at the age of 20, guess what he came across? A copy of the full Bible. He was astonished. You know what uh, he had known about the Bible up to this point? He had known a few Psalms. He had known a few uh, sections of the Gospels that, that the, the Pope and the priest deemed what the people needed to hear during public readings. Not that they had it in their hands. Now, here's the thing. Martin Luther could read Latin. Okay? Of course, he had been educated. He could read Latin. So he finds this Bible written in Latin, and he begins to look at the Bible. He's, he's amazed. He can't believe it. And the very first passage that grabs his attention is the account of Hannah and Samuel. He was just transfixed. So he goes back home, and he, he, he made a statement, Oh, if God would just let me have a book like this of my own. That's heartbreaking, brethren, isn't it? He was begging for a copy of the Bible. He thought the whole of the Bible encapsulated those few psalms and those few sections from the Gospels. But now a whole other world being opened to Martin Luther. And in his mind, within the pages of that book, lay the beginnings of the Reformation movement. Now, he's wrong in a lot of areas. But he wanted a Bible so badly, and now he had one. And so he continually went back and forth, back and forth to that library so he could read the Holy Word of God. Any comments? All righty. Well, we'll pick up here next time. Continue on with Martin Luther.